please note, at about the 30-minute mark, we had a technical issue with Andrew's mic. We apologize for the sound quality. So this is the first ever Shatekri Plus crossover pod. I mm. think we're going to post this to Shatekri as the weekly interview. So welcome. Welcome to Shatekri, both of you. Um, Sharp Tech and Sharp China Feeds. We should apologize to our most loyal listeners who listen to every single podcast because we're giving you three of the exact same episodes. <laughs> but, uh, I do think this is an opportunity to touch on subjects pertinent to all of us. So over here to my right, we are all in person, is Andrew Sharp, host of Sharp Tech and Sharp China. Yes, it's great to be here. Welcome to Sharp China Turf here, Ben. I yeah, think this I, is I, mostly a Sharp China episode. We'll, well, we'll we, are in, we are in the Sharp China room, which is Bill Bishop on my left's library here in Washington, D.C., uh, beautifully adorned uh, with Chinese art and all sorts of things. But Bill, good good to see you again. Good to see you, Ben. Welcome to DC. It's nice to have you have you here in person. Yeah, well, it's been I, too I, long. It, it's been too long since you've been on Shatekri because you were a regular guest for interviews, and then we watched a podcast, and then you were never on Shatekri anymore. So <laughs> I'm glad we could sort of solve that solve that problem. Um, but you know, given we are just over a year old, and actually, Andrew, I kind of wanted to start with you. Let's start with Sharp Tech. We'll get to we'll spend most of this time on China. Um, you know, again, it's great to have Bill sort of back on. But since we are doing a crossover pod, we have to cater to mm. to the fans. Um, you've famously been thrown to the wolves in a subject matter that you freely admit you're not an expert in. Um, are you an expert now? In in what technology? Yes. <laughs> Um, I wouldn't go so far as to call myself an expert. I do feel more well-versed in it today than I did uh, a year and a half ago. And particularly when we start talking about things like the chip ban and everything else, I, I, like, I, I'm more fluent in it than I could have ever imagined a couple years ago. Um, and there are aspects of technology and the conversations that we have that honestly, I've always been pretty fluent in, in terms of the way we all interact with technology and technology's role in reshaping society as we know it. So that part of it comes pretty naturally for me. Um, prepping for both Sharp China and Sharp Tech is always an adventure. And Sharp Tech, it can sometimes be even more difficult because you have this encyclopedic knowledge of tech and the the context for everything that we're talking about today. So like you'll jump into a 15 minute digression about the history of Microsoft. And I'm like, wait a second, this is not supposed to be on the test. I'm prepped for the news that we're talking about today. Um, gotta, gotta surprise you. Gotta keep you, keep you surprised. Um, well, what's been the biggest surprise sort of hosting Sharp Tech? Um, so the biggest surprise hosting and I, you can take it either tech. way. Cause there's, there's a question surprise as far as technology in the year you've been paying particularly close attention or, you know, I guess about the podcast specifically. Well, I would say the surprise, um, uh, was how much time we've spent talking about streaming and entertainment, which I know like the back of my hand, like there, are, there are aspects of tech and what is covered on Stratechery that, um, it is, I guess it's it's closer to my zone of expertise than I would have guessed. And um, other than that, though, you make it fairly easy. There is a surprise that I've run into hosting uh, Sharp China, which is that like when we first got together and we're talking about potentially doing this show with Bill, one of the reasons I was so excited about it was that I felt like 
the, the China and its interactions with the rest of the world just wasn't covered very well um, in the mainstream. And what I found early on is that it actually is covered pretty well, but it's a situation where almost all of the best coverage is subscription-based coverage, including Bill. Like I'm so much smarter today about China than I was a year and a half ago because I read cynicism every day. But then also you've got like the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and the Financial Times, all of whom do really great work, but all of whom are really expensive to subscribe to. And so it dovetails with like a consistent theme on sharp tech, which is that the marketplace that that the internet once was, where it was like this utopian free exchange of ideas and uh, frictionless all over the world, that's going away. And it's starting to look more and more like a traditional marketplace where if it's something of value, you're going to have to pay for it. And, uh, that certainly has been true of China coverage, where there's a lot of great stuff out there, but you have to subscribe, essentially. So subscribe to Sharp China. Well, subscribe, to Sharp China. well subscribe to, 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 to Cynicism. And can I just say, credit to Bill, he is the most patient co-host because I was mispronouncing Cynicism for like the first six weeks That's we were hosting but i thought you were gonna say the biggest surprise was now that you have people come up to you and ask for autographs now that you That's right. your podcast with ben right that's the that's the big thing is we're all much more famous now. I, I don't know about you that. know what I, 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 honestly I this is gonna make ben uncomfortable but that has been one of the biggest surprises is the extent to which ben thompson fanboys like really lose it when they know and love ben thompson yes. <laughs> There aren't that many of them. I've worked with Bill Simmons. Bill Simmons has many more fans, but the passionate fans that Ben has are really something else. So I've gotten a kick out of meeting them along the way as well. Well, I'm actually curious from your perspective, Bill, and, and you know the way into so much of this coverage is been you know cynicism that you've written for for many many years. You know, my whole thing and the sort of pitch to you with with, with Sharp China was look we get those little morsels of commentary at the top of a letter. And you, if you scroll down it just scroll past all the translations the and look for the comment. long section. That's right. <laughs> I, I just bought Bill's take on it. And now you are an official takesman. Um, How has it felt to uh, adopt that mantle for, for the last year? It's actually good. I, I like, I like the chance to start with Andrew. He's a really good interviewer. Actually. It's, it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, China is not wasn't your thing before you did it, but you're actually really good at asking, doing research and asking the right questions. And I think that helps the conversation because in some ways it, it makes it, um, it, it brings it down to sort of a, a, a sort of a more of a um, uh, just sort of a more fluid discussion and fluid discussion. And so, um, no, I like it. I wish I, I now every week I try and think, gosh, I wish I could just automatically spit out what I said and then put it in my commentary. Yeah, no, um, that, because, because actually I realize when you talk, it's actually much easier for stuff to flow than when you try and sit there and write. For sure. For sure. Well, one thing that's interesting about Sharp China in particular is there is a bit where over the last few years, but I would say arguably over the last year in particular, China has become like a current thing, right? It's yeah, like a big thing. deal. And particularly here in DC, I think more than, than maybe, maybe other areas. What has that been like from your perspective as you know, you, like you've been covering China 
for wait, when did you start Cynicism? 2007, 2000? Uh, actually, I think I launched Cynicism as a blog in 2000. I, got it, I think it was 2010 or 2011. Okay, got it. And then, and then you were doing the newsletter for ages. Yeah, just sort um, of free hobby. And then you kept trying to convince me to like make it into a business. I don't, I, I, finally, I, I listened. Yeah, Thank you. Uh, I, for, for a very long time, Atashi is the fourth member of our... of our. If you hear a dog wandering around yes, in the background. The, yes. the famous Tashi. Um, but what, what's that been like to become like the sender of things as opposed to like a niche interest that people in the state department will subscribe to and read well it's interesting because when i started it it was really more about um very niche a lot of stuff in chinese was just kind of do what i was interested in and figure the people wanted to follow that's fine as it got bigger and i turned into business you realize you have to figure out how you make it both um focused but also more accessible and so there's this constant tension between how do you make it more accessible and sort of more um, just written for a broader audience, but also stay focused. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sort of, my goal, I just like writing the newsletter. It was never to become like sort of someone who was heavily followed. I'm glad it's a good business, but I don't really like, um, it was never my aspiration to be kind of a center of attention, so to speak. And, you know, it, it's, it was merely serendipity. We ended up in DC. This was not our for, first choice leaving Beijing. And so even though we're here, and I think sometimes it gets lumped in as sort of part of the DC view on China. It actually really is. I mean, I'm not, I, I came here with no aspirations for like being in the government, being a think tank. It just happened to be sort of the place we picked. Right. Um, but it's good actually, I think, because it, it lets me, there's lots and lots of takes on China and DC. Um, I, we've joked before on, on sort of China, you could have like a game of op-eds if just about sort of op-eds about China that come <laughs> out every day. Um, I try and just sort of focus on sort of here are the facts and kind of look at it that way and and not sort of have a more politicized take where because I think there's a, too much of that in D.C. But that gets tougher and tougher to maintain. It gets tougher and tougher to maintain. And, and, you know, part of the problem is as things change in China um, and sort of you see how sort of the country has shifted under CGP, it gets tougher and tougher to do that. Well, let's let's stop with the navel gazing and we can actually get to some topics other than ourselves. This would have been the world's easiest podcast just to keep talking, you know, <laughs> looking in the mirror as it goes. But, um, you know, from a strategy and sharp tech perspective, the biggest story over the last year mm-hmm. pertaining to China is the chip ban. And I know that you guys have talked about this a fair bit on Sharp China, but for the sake of sort of the listeners that haven't caught those episodes or mostly listen to Reach the Techery or, or listen to Sharp Tech, what's been, Bill, your sort of high-level opinion about the chip ban and your sort of perspective on this? And you can sort of take that in any direction you want. There's lots of angles of this. Your personal opinion, and then we'll get to sort of the China perspective maybe a little bit more in a moment. So I think, and we actually have a little bit of divergence, I, I think the 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 risk with going down the road of starting to put in these restrictions around both semiconductor tools software as well as chips is that uh, and it, it started under Trump with ZTE and then Huawei is that it has really mobilized sort of an all of nation approach in China not just from the government but from investors from companies and from the sort of the mass the, the masses so to speak and so. The challenge then becomes, you know, the the way the first Trump administration and the Biden administration have implemented these controls is they have lots of loopholes. They have lots of backdoors that are sort of written into them intentionally or not. And so it's a it's been very leaky. And I think what it's done is it mobilized China. It basically focused and forced them to focus on de-Americanizing large swaths of their tech stack, which 
various paranoid folks in the security services had talked about for years, but they'd never really had the the real impetus to do it. Now they do. And then the question is, well, if you're going to go down this road as the government, do you keep making it leaky or do you just go all the way? And I think what we've ended up with in some ways is the worst of both worlds is what I is sort of where I come away. And I think, you know, this latest round of updated controls in the second week of October, the updated the October 7 controls from last year, uh, were a lot tougher on AI, but then they actually loosened some stuff on the semiconductor equipment. And so I think it, it, it sets China back, but in some ways it may end up rebounding and make them much more, much more motivated and focused on um, really pushing out U.S. tech much faster. Yeah. I mean, you're, Andrew, you're going to have to be the judge here because – I'm still waiting for the part where we disagree. <laughs> well, um, I, I think I think we're we're totally on the same. But page I, I thought you said well, it was going to force China basically down this road that was going to make them go for like the, the really the sort of the the most advanced stuff too quickly instead of building up. No, no, the- I I don't. I actually the I think the way for China to respond to this chip ban is to completely and utterly utterly de-Americanize, and the way you do that is. When they built these seven nanometer chips, that's using basically all U.S. technology and equipment. Yeah. And so that they had already gotten in or, or fit into these loopholes. And I think the long term most sustainable approach for China and the most damaging to the U.S. interests in the long run is to go back to what where they can make all the equipment. They can do it all, whether that be 90 nanometers or 1.3 microns or whatever it be and master that. And then move up the next node, master that, move up and when they, and get to the point where you can actually make seven nanometer and maybe it takes 10 years or whatever, however long, but you're doing it on all Chinese equipment. At that point, you, you have the U.S. really under the barrel on multiple perspectives, which is number one, you basically will have completely dominate the trailing edge. Like these are the chips that like go in cars or go in right. appliances and all that sort of thing. And because you've been working down this curve. You've been flooding the market. You're probably half bankrupting TSMC along the way because you're just selling these. You have massive government subsidies, so you're way mm-hmm. underpricing right. the yeah, rest you, of the world. It's like the Japanese flooding the RAM market yeah. you know, in, in the 80s. Uh, and so, number one, that is weakening that sort of whole ecosystem in general. And it's increasing the world's dependence on China because you need China – like GM for refrigerators, China, yeah, China. yeah, and and you know, as we saw, that's what actually moved the needle with like the chips act and stuff like that. Was despite Intel probably going to be the biggest beneficiary, the actual pain was felt on like chips that were, once it was impossible to find a rental car, right? Or, chips yeah. were made like twenty five years ago. So that, that, but then moving forward to your point, um, you've eliminated this point of leverage going forward because they've now built out their own thing. And then number three, you can start to seriously threaten U.S. leadership elsewhere and around the world, and you start bleeding. And you know, part of the whole issue with China and why the loopholes exist is the, these chip companies are like, look, we need this revenue for R&D, for sort of like pushing forward, and you're killing not just us, but also like you know the, the future of technology going forward. A bit of that, I think, is oversold on their part. Their revenues has been artificially inflated for since ZTE, basically, because China has right. been been sort of. Well, well for example, stuff. Tencent announced today in their earnings that they have two years worth of the two generations worth of the Nvidia chips they need for their like AI model. Right, they've yeah. been stock they stockpiled so much. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, and I think this is actually one of the big questions around Nvidia and their earnings and their alleged, uh, you know, being short supply. How, to what extent have they been short supply because they've known this is coming? And mm. basically every chip they've been making for the last nine months has been the 800 versions and sending them to China. 
Um, I would imagine a very large amount. And so, and that's what they say. The chip end comes down and he's like, yeah, they'll have no impact on earnings. Yeah. Because you have all this backlog of shipping the actual versions of your chips to the U S because you've been sending everything to China. So, um, yeah, so I'm not surprised. I'm, I'm not surprised yeah, to hear that. No, they probably, they've really, it, it forced, it forced a lot of demand forward or pushed a lot of demand. That's forward. right. And, and, and that has been happening for all the semiconductor suppliers, for like five to six years, like 30% yeah. of their revenue has been. So China's just been stockpiling every aspect of this chain. Now, that is still about using U.S. equipment to build 28 nanometer chips, 14 nanometer chips, 10 nanometer, maybe even 7 nanometer, as they sort of demonstrate they can. Mm-hmm. But I do think the real long-term risk is building up from the bottom, and it's all China equipment. So um, one question, though, um, as far as de-Americanizing is concerned, do you think that they can, because in talking to both of you, um, I, it, the divergence may be th- that, Bill, you think that th- it's possible that they can focus on both leading edge and trailing edge at the same time. And I'm not sure that you think that. I don't want to say what well, you think I, I or don't do, think. I, well, I think the, the question is, you talk about the whole of China approach, is um, how much of the money and resources are going to like the seven nanometer stage and, and, and building a competitor there. Cause you see makes... the fanfare surrounding the Huawei breakthrough. That's right. And, and I like, wonder, you know, it, has it actually sharpened their focus? That's right. It, 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 right. Exactly. It, whereas I think the, you know, it, China loves to, you know, sell the story that we're the leadership that cares about 20 years from now and 200 years from now, we're not like those short-term democracies. Right. <laughs> if that was actually the case, they wouldn't care about the seven nanometer chip because that's actually in some respects a false victory because you like that's as far as you're ever going to get because you don't you don't have uv the only way you're probably going to get uv is by learning to moving down the learning curve of all these other technologies yeah. so you understand how that works and if you actually had the you know, 100 year view or whatever the what's the right year the the the, the, the 100 year view is that does that work uh, well, there's that book, The 100 Year Marathon. I don't know. I mean, I, you yeah. know, it, 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 it's 2020, 2049 is supposed to be the, the, right. the, well, the great would, rejuvenation. So. And would Putin and Xi are that, ushering that, in that changes that we haven't seen in yeah. 100 years. So yes. keep um, that in mind as well. Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> see, this is the problem. Although the China experts just become, you know, uh, spouting Chinese propaganda over here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, th- so that is, maybe this is the the, the point here, which is, Worry is not the right word because I'm sitting here as an American. As an analyst, my concern if I was looking at China as like a company is like you're pursuing short-term gains when all your energy should be built, uh, focused on the long-term sort of dominance. And what I would say to that is I actually think given given the resources the government is pushing into this sector, that they're trying to do both. Now yeah. it doesn't mean it's going to be incredibly wasteful. You know, they they've had these these they had the big fund. They called it the big fund, which was they had a fund for several years to invest in chip semiconductor related stuff. They ended up arresting most of the, the executives because they were so corrupt, right? And they ended up a bunch of crappy investments, wasted money. They arrested them all. They had a big corruption crackdown. I think the next round of people got the message, um, and so I, I just think that it, it when you look at sort of how. From Xi Jinping on down, they talk about the imperatives of breaking through what they call these choke point technologies, and specifically like semiconductor. Um, you know, they are putting every resource they can get their hands on into this, from money to people to cyber espionage to hire, you know, hiring people from Taiwan, hiring people from Korea, Japan, from the U.S. 
And so it, it, it's not obviously not easy and it may not make, may take many years, but I do think that, um, now that they're fully motivated, we might, you know, again, we would probably be wise to assume that they're going to actually be more successful and not in this endeavor. Right. Which I think, which I think is reasonable. Yeah. I mean, one thing that is interesting too, is you mentioned the, the espionage bit, which speaks to the idea that they're not being asked to invent this stuff. And they, they have working models of all this equipment. Like they just need to reproduce it. And, uh, and figure out like what's the and this is where like like metallurgy is like a huge thing like the nature of of like you know whether it be the the parts in the machines or or the the silicon itself or all this sort of things they that is a lot of the key learnings they need to do to say invent EUV for example like right. there's parts of that the laser in particular that is super um it's not never been shipped before it's something unique and they're gonna have to figure that out but they know it exists and that makes it easier and the reason why this is important is. A way to counter what you said is you go back to like Intel and Robert Noyes, and he was very determined to not take government contracts because the point was when you take government contracts, they start dictating what you do. And his whole bet was that the consumer market would provide such volume. Give you better that, that would actually, Yeah, and, and the, the market pressures would force you to invent stuff that actually mattered sort of, sort, sort of in the market and you say, oh, well, it's China, that's, you know, you can't just throw money at the problem. The difference is it's a fundamentally different problem. Intel was actually inventing new things that didn't yeah. exist in the world. This is just an attempt to can we reliably reproduce something that we know is possible and does exist. And if you do, and we have our hands on already. And if you do, you're selling into the you know potentially largest consumer market in the world, right? I mean, if you know you're you're replacing all the self all the all the self smartphone chips, all the computer chips in China. Right, so you have the consumer market if you can do it. It's not like you're a small country where you have to figure out how to export it. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Taiwan definitely knows knows the pain but, there. Uh, uh, one other thing I'd add to that though is 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 it there's a sort of a broader backdrop to this de-Americanization where Trump and then the Biden administration their policies have certainly accelerated this. But you have to go back to Snowden and those re- revelations where uh, that was a real wake up call for. Um, Again, the people in the security services where they realized that very early on, after very soon after the Snowden revelations, they made a much more concerted effort to rip out Cisco from all their internet and rip out, you know, like Oracle and other American, you know, software and, and hardware because they realized that it was all vulnerable to the NSA. So that was more of a they, they can use all these things to spy on us approach, but it was this broader, we need our own indigenous, indigenous technology. And, you know, there's this Project H63 that I think they started in the 80s, again, which was, you know, they tried to build semiconductor ships. It's all about, you know, there, there's this multi-decade um, programs within, the, within the, 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 the country to have their own key technologies because they don't want to be relying on the U.S., and so this may have been inevitable. I just think the inevitability has now been accelerated. Yeah, I mean, I think because I do think there, it does still matter. Is it a government bureaucrat? giving you money and telling you to do something versus sort of to your point, is it 10 cent demanding and putting you, you know, we need this performance. We need sort of X, Y, Z. And that is another, you know, pertinent thing that is, yeah. that will shift over time and it will actually drive better results. So we'll yeah. See. 
The one other thing that I would add is it was really interesting for me just watching the evolution of the chip ban and the evolution of the updated controls that were passed last month, just in terms of the way the American system works. Like I've said a couple of times on Sharp China, I end up learning as much about America as I do about China just from hosting that podcast and watching the lobbying effort that the chip companies were engaged in over the summer and the twists and turns that the conversation took as various luminaries on the chip side said, look, we're not going to be able to build the factories in the, the fabs in America that we had talked about if you're kneecapping us in this export market and just pressuring the executive branch to basically soft pedal any sort of updates to the controls. And to Bill's point, what was passed a year ago really did kneecap American companies without achieving its goal and without really creating a a situation where you're actually slowing down China's long-term ambitions. And um, that it, it, it was encouraging to see that the U.S. government eventually did actually update the controls in a meaningful way um, because for a while there, it looked like the lobbyists were going to end up winning out and uh, it would just be this Swiss cheese sort of regulation um, that didn't achieve any of its stated goals. And that was a little bit deflating as an American to watch the government sort of stumble into that. Well, I was going to ask you, I had a question that I skipped over. Um, if Sharp China has made you more, maybe more pessimistic than you might have hoped, but it's good to see Optimus Andrew is, is yeah. here in full force. So <laughs> yeah. well, we, we like, both Bill are kind of looking at you well, said, okay. I'm well, well, what, <laughs> well one, th- one thing I'd add to that, which is interesting is, is I learned earlier this year, you know, the way that the original round of the, the October 7 controls got passed, I mean, there was a lot of resistance, a lot of lobbying against it, was Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Because, and, and someone who worked on it told me that was our window to push it through because the Chinese so overreacted that it basically put everyone against these sort of tougher controls on a back foot because it looked like they were, you know, it was just too hard to argue against, well, look what, look what China may be doing. Um, you know, we know we have lobbyists. Some of the lobbyists who listen to Sharp China, we've gotten a call from at least one after a podcast when we talked about this. I think um, a right of initiation, yes, right, right I, of passage. I, I will say, when you look at the latest round, the updated controls, when you look at the companies who have really good government affairs teams and hired people, say from out of the like the the Department of Commerce, like Lam Research, for example, versus Nvidia, who has up until recently no government affairs team and took a much more direct approach at trying to sort of push really hard against the government and specific officials, the ones who know how to have good lobbyists and know how to work it came out much better on this controls than the ones like NVIDIA who didn't. Yeah. So NVIDIA it's, is changing it's sort of a, It's sort of a rite of passage yes. for, for especially the high-flying tech companies that, you know, are used to winning on sheer sort of charisma and, and technology. And money. And just basically, yep. you just, I got five million bucks here, I'm going to throw it at you, and you you do what I want you to do. Yeah. It, 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 we have sophisticated corruption here, not this low-grade <laughs> sort of thing. Exactly. So. Um, well, well, what about the, um, on the China side, how has this changed their perspective? Or is it not, a surprise from sort of at least from what you can infer from Beijing. And this is, is it sort of something where just empowered the people that were skeptical about 
the dependence on American chips in general, which so, are more hardliners or so I think it's I think it's done that. I think it's certainly empowered the people who are more skeptical to give with. I think it also um fit into Xi's worldview. Xi Jinping's view of sort of a broader um sort of, I don't want to use the word confrontation in the kinetic sense, but just the broader struggle with the United States. Right. And, that, and that this just confirmed everything that he believed it had been saying. Yeah. And, and so, um, and ultimately, I think on China right now, the biggest winner, again, ironically, considering what the U.S. government did to them, it looks like it's going to be Huawei, where right. they're getting they're, the most they support. Are, the, they have the their AI chips now that they're yep. pushing out. They're trying to set up their own, you know, push out their own AI framework to basically completely... Because Nvidia, Nvidia is very sticky, right? I mean, you, yep. you right, and so they're trying to just the destroy the Nvidia yep. ecosystem. Yep. From a sort of technological perspective, the real risk for Nvidia is that CUDA becomes weakened because there's an entire part of the entire broader ecotech ecosystem that, just, that is not building on, yeah. on Nvidia anymore. There is some encouragement here where I think Huawei is going about it wrong. Like they're trying to have their own proprietary sort of alternative to CUDA when actually they should be China should be weaning heavily. They should be the biggest proponents of open source. Cause then you're, you're everyone in tech wants there to be an open source alternative to CUDA. And, and you could be pushing forward and benefiting from Western investment and pushing for sort of an alternative ecosystem. But Huawei kind of like wants to be the Chinese version of NVIDIA. Well, but then also, I mean, to your point, which, which again would be not that I want Huawei to do this, but then it would make sense because it also means that the, the, that would eventually probably increase uptake of the Chinese products in the rest of the world too. Right. Right. Yep. yep. I mean, it would be a way of getting around the sort of, which, the, which sort of speaks to my point. It, yeah. It's sort of a, a, another angle that I was getting at earlier where I'm not sure China is, is taking the optimal ap- approach you know, oh, they usually don't, but, they, but they, they usually take a brute force approach with a lot of money and people and some stuff works someone will and figure some, it out. some yeah. doesn't work and sometimes they will figure it out. And I think in this case, the, the stakes are so high and it's become such a political priority from the top that the odds are that they'll make more breakthroughs than, than I think a lot of people expect. It would be, would be my guess. Yeah. This, is, this specific point, though, does, is, is it all Huawei, to your point? Or does it become a more open sort of ecosystem? Well, I think is actually one of the more interesting questions yes, of how is. this develops. And if it's much better for NVIDIA if it becomes a Huawei ecosystem, because no one in the West is buying Huawei right, stuff. Right, so, right, right, uh, right, right, right. Uh, whereas if it's NVIDIA versus open source, that's a much bigger threat. T- except them. maybe the Germans. But sorry. No, that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> different discussion. <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, the, another podcast that is uh, TBD uh, to, to, to be determined. Um, well, Moving on from the chip ban, I thought your point about this validates Xi Jinping's view of the world was incredibly astute and pretty chilling, to be to be pretty honest. Um, what does this mean for sort of the long run? And what does it mean for U.S. companies in China? I think that Intel not being allowed to buy Tower because China just never bothered to consider the case – I think was the most probably concrete retaliation. Um, that was, you know, you, it was a very Chinese sort of completely deniable. Yeah. We just didn't get to it sort of thing. Oh, well, they're doing passed. it again with, with Broadcom and um, VMware. VMware. Yeah. yeah. Which, um, you know, the whole point of that acquisition is it's not clear why those two companies go together. It's not really an antitrust concern. Uh, is that it though? Do, does like Apple need to worry? Like, like, have you been surprised that there hasn't been more retaliation? 
I think in what I had heard was after October 7th last year, people after a couple months like oh there's no real retaliation you know there was that actually the chinese are taking a much more systematic approach to how they retaliate and sort of trying to figure out where they have real leverage that they can use they can exercise without damaging their own interests and so i think that's one reason why apple really hasn't been affected because they're still you know apple through foxconn and through some of the you know like lux what is it what's the the luxor lux luxor lux for what is it yeah something um and and other other sort of suppliers yeah, they employ a lot of Chinese people. They 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 put a lot of money into the Chinese economy, and so um, I think that they. But they've gone after. They started to go after some of the sort of the key critical minerals, rare earths. You know, sort of talking. They haven't quite banned it, but they're talking about. You know, maybe you have to you have to report your exporting, or they have sort of export quotas, etc. Um, they are starting to flex, and uh, I think that Apple. If they were to go after Apple, then that would also just spook so many foreign investors and foreign companies. Yeah, um, because Apple One is is such an iconic brand too; it employs so many Chinese people. Three, Apple and Tim Cook have done a huge amount of work to stay in the good graces of the Chinese government, and so if if they were to get somehow affected, um, that would be uh, pretty shocking. Although, again, we know Foxconn is in, under the gun because of. Taiwan, but so nobody, you know, Foxconn employs hundreds of thousands of people, if not over a million. So you're not immune. Can we explain the Foxconn thing? Because I don't know that everybody knows that. Well, there's a little bit of a side. So the, the founder of Foxconn has left the company. Now he's running for president in Taiwan. Um, he's a spoiler. He's not going to win. He's probably going to make it so that the candidate that, the Be- that Beijing doesn't like has a better chance of winning. And so recently, like about a month ago, sort of like a the authorities in, in China announced that they were looking at like a, a, a tax audit inve- and a land use investigation of Foxconn to basically shoot across their bow to hope with the point being that the, the Terry Go, the founder, should really just drop out of the race. And then all of a sudden, oh, your taxes are OK. Um, but he's not dropping out of the race, so I think actually Foxconn's probably going to get um, gets the screws are going to turn a bit tighter over the next few days on Foxconn. Um, but so back to your point, I think ultimately when you look at these tech companies the, and the ones I've talked to, I mean, it is more about how much money can you harvest from China before the party's over. Most of these tech companies realize that there is no sort of law, like like given the way the party is moving in terms of indigenous innovation. You know, getting rid of the you're basically de-Americanizing the core tech stack, the long term for most of these companies is 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 grim. But as you know, I mean, CEOs, they're not there for the long term for the most case. They're there for this quarter, next year. They're incented. Their 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 pay incentive pay is based on much shorter term horizons. So they'd much rather squeeze what they can out of China now and let the next person deal with it. Yep. Yeah. No, I think that I think that that's a that I agree with you. I think I used to write at the beginning of Shatekery about, you know, what about Apple and sort of thing. And it, it quickly became apparent they were n- not a retaliation target. If ever they cracked down on Apple, that's like the end of the game, right? Yeah. Because to your point, the employment, yeah, no, exactly. But they can chip away at things. Like they, they're probably going to be chipping away at the App Store by forcing, you know, Apple's kind of gotten away with having apps that aren't approved in their Chinese App Store. Not anymore. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, there was the the stuff that bubbled up at the end of August where certain certain – like state-owned enterprises and government bureaucracies, government ministries were telling their employees that they shouldn't be you have Apple phones or shouldn't bring Apple foreign devices, yep. but really Apple devices. That was there was never any proof of like this this sort of statewide ban. It, it had it started over the summer. It was not at all time to like the Huawei phone launch. 
Um, but I think it's also like Tesla is banned from certain areas. When Xi Jinping travels in China, Teslas are banned from a certain radius of Xi Jinping because the assumption is this is a foreign connected device. Therefore, it is, you know, we on the Chinese side, we understand how these devices can be used as vector for spying. Projection. Yeah, and it's yeah. a lot of projection, right? <laughs> it tells you a lot about how they view these devices and these cars. That question of projection or, or validation ties back to the Snowden uh, yeah. point you made sort of before. And yeah, the, the, the long-term impact of that, because that obviously is, that's caused all kinds of problems for tech companies in Europe as well. Yep. Like all, you know, the data transfer stuff and all these sorts of things and all like gives a lot of teeth and, and energy to stuff that is not only about privacy, but really goes back to, to the sort of Snowden revelations for sure. The, what, speaking of data and privacy, you know, another question folks have is around AI, you know, the nominal driver of this chip ban, more of a crack on this time, this, this time. Um, what is the sense of where China is as far as sort of AI is concerned? So they're pretty far ahead on regulation. You know, they pushed out this, this these rules on um, for AI. I mean, they, obviously they have a political component, right? So you have to make sure that it, that, that you know, whatever you're, um, your model is spitting out is in accord with like core, socialist core values and doesn't say anything bad about the party. Um, but they've actually thought pretty hard about it. And so I think, I mean, there was a good post by this, this um, uh, guy, Kevin Shu, who writes a newsletter. He just had a post earlier this week about he's quite bearish because he says, forget the chip ban. You know, they, they block hugging face, right? Which I guess is because right, the of the open data source, open source right? models. Yeah. Um, the way that the Chinese internet sort of data is structured and the way people get around censorship makes messes up the data sets. And then you have all this regulation where you're a startup and you want to do something like AI. You have to go through all these hoops to sort of pass the rule. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm relieved you're going this direction because your opening response was they're ahead in regulation. I'm like, did you mean that as a good thing or a bad thing? No, because I meant that I as strong an, views no, on this. No, I, I meant that as an, as, as, as an agnostic in terms of like regulators thinking it through. Like, like the EU would be proud. Put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> that, that fount of innovation, yes. the EU, yes. The Biden executive order, there were so many people in the American tech community who were like, well, there it goes. We're going to lose the AI battle with China, and they're putting us at such a competitive disadvantage. And in the back of my mind, as, as the co-host of Sharp China, I was like, not sure, but I don't think that China is some like haven for free enterprise and innovation. Yeah, well, it's been really interesting to watch over time, right? You know, for a long time, the assumption was that China would dominate AI because of Western reluctance to collect the data necessary, right? And, yeah. and that arguably... Data been, is the new oil, That's right, right that's yes. right. Oh, the <laughs> yeah, worst I, phrase. I, I, I wrote a that. whole article <laughs> once taking down that yes. specific phrase because it's so irritating. Um, I mean, the... but. Data. It's more like data is new. because you you, yeah. you 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 believe that yes I get it so what are we gonna do? <laughs> but I mean what that's arguably been true as far as things like face tracking are going are concerned right and you know that sort of stuff China is very good at and it also for obvious reasons aligns with with sort of concerns of leadership but this is where the large language models have really been interesting because one to your point China has less stuff on the internet because of censorship or to the extent it's on there it's all screwed up right yeah you know, and the like, way people get around the it and five gazillion ways you refer yeah. to tiananmen square right? yeah or whatever yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly um, and but then number two to your point china is going to be much more restrictive on llms but not because they hallucinate that will be the excuse 
but because they might tell too much of the truth, right? right? And that's the big concern. No, that that's right. And so and so it it is a. I mean, you'll probably have like like be quite ahead in things like looking at uh, CAT scans or or you know healthcare diagnostic stuff, right? That that's probably where they may actually end up go, being ahead. But like these big LLMs, it doesn't. Again, I think it's you, you sort of really have to scratch your head and wonder how is that going to work when when everything is just so controlled yep. and censored and how does you know i mean how you ask it a question about history well there's the communist party version of history and then there's the rest of the world version of history and so i mean you have to put a lot of work into making sure that those models don't spit out the kind of thing that it gets you in trouble if not detained right Yep. yep. I mean, if you remember the bite dance early on when when Zhang Yiming they had a bite dance um, i had a tiktok Sorry, ByteDance. I get there. It's an yeah, American, TikTok's an American company. Yeah, ByteDance or the Cayman company. ByteDance is a Chinese company. Um, he they had in their previous app they had the, some bad information. He had to write this abject, humiliating apology about sort of making sure that in the future he would adhere to the sort of socialist core values and the leadership of the Communist Party. Um, and it was just an absolutely groveling piece. But that's what you need to do. Yep. And it's going to happen in the AI world sooner or later. It's just inevitable. It does feel like there's been, sort of speaking of, a lot more energy about TikTok and TikTok being a concern. And maybe Trump was right. Um, I, by the way, that's the countervailing story as far as optimism for our government's confidence is concerned. Uh, when you compare the chip ban and successfully updating the export controls, Sort of feels like the Americans have dropped the ball on TikTok, but we'll see where we end up over the next. Well, I mean, as a longtime TikTok hater, um, not because it's Chinese, but because it makes you feel old. Uh, you know, what, 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 do you feel the vibes are shifting? Is 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 the ban coming, or is it just never going to happen? We're just going to keep griping about it. Well, it certainly sounds like the ban is not going to be coming from a Democratic president in the in the run up to an election. Um, and it turns out it's kind of useful. Well, I don't know that it is that useful. I think there are people on the Dem side who look at TikTok and are terrified that they would lose a generation of liberal voters if they ban TikTok. I actually think that's a mistake. And I think if there's a voter out there who's a single issue voter and is a TikTok voter, that person probably shouldn't be voting anyway. But I do think that that fear is part of what has sort of broken the tie, as it were, in terms of whether or not to take action on TikTok. And it's interesting because the philosophy that underlies the chip ban is that we're looking at China as a foreign adversary. And if we have the ability to blunt their progress in AI, that is a national security concern that's worth and it's worth sacrificing the preeminence of our most valuable industry in the very long run because it's worth the risk. It, you, you know, I'm now upset because it, it's yeah. such a good point. We are risking, more upset. We're risking our single most important industry in the short term as far as, as far as R&D goes in the long term of Chinese actually building up and competing around the world when they would have been basically a monopoly forever. Right. We're willing to do that. And we're not willing to ban or, or force a shift in ownership. I don't want TikTok. Uh, TikTok is a competitor to Facebook. Great. The ownership, the fact that it, it, it is run from China, and, again, <laughs> and they can't do that. And they continually get caught 
sort of oh misunderstanding we you know we we don't have any access from china oh well this guy had we forgot to change the setting they continue getting caught in these you know call them misunderstandings call them dissembling but but it, it's clear that the links are still there as as hard as they try to dissemble is an obvious the, the data access and you've written about this you were early on this all of that is a red herring yeah who cares yeah it doesn't really matter but if you're looking at china and the chinese government under xi and recognizing that this is a long-term adversary so we need to that's ideologically driven the free market principles that have driven us to globalize our industry in the past well don't look at the chip ban and say okay this is essential then it should also be essential using that same logic to not give that government the power over what is certainly one of the most powerful information tools we have, maybe the most powerful. And trend setting and thought sort of directions, like like yeah. directing thought apps. Setting. That's what it is. And um, it seems insane to uh, allow uh, another country, let alone a potentially adversarial country, to have that power. It is insane. Well, it Nepal did- just banned it. <laughs> India's banned it. You know that, and China's banned all of our social <laughs> networks well, for a well, reason, I mean, right? Like, no, but but this is the whole thing is like you, any policy that you have that it's based on absolutes is going to fall down, right? So, like, oh, I believe that the government should not be seizing private property. Sure thing, I believe that as well. There exceptions exist for a reason, and to your point, we are willing to admit to those exceptions and and leverage them in the case of chips and we won't in case of this oh it's not no well the the other thing i mean so 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 things have shifted again you know there there was that surge about a year ago thereabouts you know the hearings where they brought in the 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 bite dad ceo and you know and it looked like maybe something's gonna happen and then people got busy with something else you know the next the next shiny object showed up in dc and that was it and the lobbyists did their thing um it has come back and mostly from uh, I think more on the Republican side, like like Representative Gallagher, who chairs that select committee uh, on China, Wisconsin's own, where, yeah, Wisconsin's own, um, where it comes up over the sort of what's been going, what's been on TikTok since the um, the, the October seventh uh, terrorist attack on Israel, and then the and the aftermath, and so, um, but that again is on the Republican side. The Democratic side, I really think there's there's no prospect of of the Democrats supporting a ban on TikTok or any sort of anything that would materially impact TikTok before next year's election. One, because they are, they do believe that it's very important for getting out the vote, young voters. It's where they target young voters. Two, the lobbyists, I mean, TikTok is spending so much money in this city and they've hired some of the most connected Democratic lobbyists and people, including lobbyists who are very close with the president and his administration. And so I think it's, it, they've got this town wired. It's very hard to imagine how that, changes before the election but to your point though what's crazy nothing is crazy is you talk about the data people talk about well this you know they can have access to this data and even even someone democratically decided there's a risk so you think about it you have like and we talk about what you know the 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 2016 election and oh russian interfe- russia interfered and we're not going to have a discussion we're not going to get in debate about that right but but it's, but the whole idea that sort of people say oh russia interfered and they had this crazy server stuff so you have the the presidential campaign will be uploading real-time basically selects or targeting data into TikTok for the kind of voters they want to talk or the kind of issues they want to talk. They're uploading it to what is effectively a platform that that if you if you really believe it, it's controlled by a potentially adversarial government. It's insane. It's insane, right? It's absolutely like if you're concerned about foreign interference in an election, why would you put up all this sensitive campaign? 
anybody would love to know what the sort of the internal campaign data is about, what they're trying to target, what the message they're trying to put out, and have it in real time. If you're the campaign and you're uplanting to TikTok, you're giving it to TikTok. Yep. That's the it's data insane. that actually matters. Yeah, because people don't – the way these – it's called lookalike audiences. You upload your own list of people right. into it because it's – and then the way it works is find other people on this platform that are similar to these right. people. So you are you are that's this is where Facebook gets their data. It's people uploading look like audiences. All this bit about and then they get signals from stuff you surf around the web. That is what the, the some of the signal comes from. But the actual core data is people just giving it to Facebook, and people are giving that data. Campaigns to your point are giving it to TikTok. It is it, it's insane. Again, it makes the same people that are kneecapping our chip industry, which, again, I think you can make a case for it. That's a reasonable step to take. Right. It's. But this goes back to the earlier point about, I mean, about D.C. and how I mean, it's hard not to get cynical living in D.C. and sort of starting to dig into how the sausage gets made the form. And there's a bit, too. People are so. You see this again and again. This is a human quality. I'm sure I do the same thing. People are so motivated to to believe what they already believe or what they want to believe, right? So, for example, when I first wrote about TikTok in the context of Daryl Morey and Hong Kong. Right, and his, his comments when he was at the Rockets, right? Right, yeah. yeah. And I went on TikTok, and I searched for every single NBA team, and every single NBA team brought up highlights except for the Rockets. And this is you in Taiwan. I did it via VPN, also via the U.S. But see, yes, if you want to, like, this is what, no, these are the responses I got from everyone. They're like, oh, no, you're doing it wrong. China's not leaning on the algorithm. They're not changing it or whatever. No, no, I, I've given you a hard time. No, but, but no, but that, that was, it was, oh, you're in Taiwan or you're, in, you're biased. Oh, I did VPN. Oh, it's your profile. I don't, you, it, like, That's there is. The issue, by the way, is it's all so opaque. That the, the experience. Well, no, which cuts both ways, right? It's opaque, so you it's hard to prove what's going on. But it's opaque, which means it's easy to manipulate because right. you would never even know. And, and the other thing about the censorship inside China on these internet companies is it's it's multi layered and it's actually quite clever. You have regular updates of things you're not supposed to talk about, but these companies are so conditioned no, I, in or, this or case, down so they just they err on the side of caution yep. thinking well this i shouldn't have this that's on how the so. whole that's how the whole bory thing happened but then it's right it was like, oh, that the government didn't do it right yep. but but the, the mentality is like oh we better be careful right and he, you know we don't know so let's be careful let's not do it no that's how the whole bory thing happened is it spun out of control of people preemptively yeah. reacting as opposed to being sort of a, a top-down thing but, I mean, geez, it's, well, un- it's unbelievable. And along these lines, if we're talking about the U.S. government's inefficiency, I was thinking earlier today, because we're, you know, a year in here, it's sort of a big milestone, the three of us podcasting together. And I was thinking back to some of the early podcasts that you and I did, Bill. And early on, there was a, a the World Cup was being played in Qatar. And I, there was a story about CCTV censoring the crowds in Qatar so that no masks right crowds having a great time watching soccer and I remember being pretty flabbergasted that they had that ability and were using it to sort of shape the reality that they were showing inside China and then a couple weeks later they completely reversed course and zero COVID is unwound overnight basically and it just speaks to... And then we got very accurate statistics afterwards, but right. yes. 
exactly how tragic it got there, but it, uh, it speaks to how efficient an authoritarian government can be in some ways, uh, where they can overnight shift gears and shift messaging, and there's not really any sort of well, well, we're in the middle of that right now because, I mean, it's, it's pretty funny. People online on the Chinese internet are just like, wait, oh, we, we can like Americans now. Because in the run-up to the Xi Biden meeting today, yeah. they completely shift the propaganda. And all of a sudden, it was like, you know, like people-to-people friendly relations. And also like, wait, we're th- we, we, are we supposed to hate them or are we supposed to like them? I'm confused. Yeah. <laughs> the flip side of that dynamic, though, is that there was no feedback loop for the it first three years of zero COVID and there China and its economy is still feeling the consequences of the policies that were set at the beginning of COVID. And so I, I just think that strategically as inefficient as the American system can look, there are also long-term strategic benefits to the marketplace of ideas and constitutional freedoms and the rule of law. And I think it can... And the ability to self-correct and and people and criticism. You know, I would like to end it here with Optimus Sharp, um, but it's like Optimus Prime. Yeah, that, that, that's the new podcast. But we didn't. We haven't talked. We're, we are recording as she and and uh, Biden are are meeting. I think the second yeah. most important meeting. That's you just stole my joke. That is exactly what I was going to say. Um, so I think you guys are going to record another episode that's sort of more focused on that. Go, you know, subscribe to Sharp China if if you are not, but. I, I'm curious. I don't think there's a tech angle other than the other stuff like like AI chip and stuff. But why San Francisco? I mean, was, was well, APEC? The, it's because of the APEC meeting. So, was, so, so APEC meeting was, was predetermined. Set. To be predetermined had nothing to do with she. She was she was as invited as China's member. And so then the, then the hope was that then she and Biden could meet at APEC. So Got it happened it. to be okay. San Francisco. And APEC but, was scheduled to be in San Francisco a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, okay. it's like way scheduled out, I think, more than a year in advance. It, it is, it is uh, remarkable how they can do things when they want to. Um, although we'll see what happens the day after. Um, one thing, there is a tech angle, though, because one, one of the, you know, the U.S. administration, at least, has been very, tried very hard to um, really set low expectations for this uh, meeting. You know, not really a lot of outcomes. One outcome, though, that is, I think most people, certainly the administration has talked about it and there's been some reporting about it, is there is going to be some sort of mechanism to talk about AI, um, like a working group or whatever they're going to call it, I think is, is one of the expected outcomes. And in that, there will be sort of talking about one thing, you know, there's been a story about they'll talk about we don't want to use AI in the nuclear command and control process. Great. Right. That sounds good. But it's also going to be the Chinese side wants it to use it as a forum to talk about the broader tech restrictions. So there is I mean, because because from the Chinese perspective, on the one hand, I mean, what's interesting, right, we talked about sort of how it's accelerating China's march to become, you know, indigenous. But it is a setback. It is a huge setback. They want time. Right. They're they're The game they're playing is they want relief so they can buy time so they can fill the gap. But. Even if they get relief and they buy time, it's not like, oh, okay, you're nice with again. Never mind. We're going to kill the funds and we're going to not give. You know, we're not going to try and become self. You know, become um, self reliant. It's just all about how do we work it so that we can fill that gap to so that we get more time to catch up. So should I be worried being in Taiwan? You know, actually, I, I actually today in my newsletter I wrote. Um, optimism. Um, I think there is going to be a, a shift where people have been really negative about Taiwan, about US-China. I think this meeting will put a sort of a, a, a near-term, 
I mean, it's so cliche, but like a floor in the downward trajectory of the relationship. So I think over the next few months, there will probably be more and more kind of more positive talk about U.S. and China. It's not going to fix anything, but it's going to change the change the, the the sort of change the attitude for some people and change the the, the discussion and the environment. I think on Taiwan, the the deal to sort of have the two opposition candidates combine their. Um, combine. And well, they combine the legislative slate, though. But but uh, no, today think... they announced that actually they're they're. they're oh well, there right, you right. go. I so, actually and, I did and, not and know. And the former president, brokered it, and then they're going to basically decide who is the presidential candidate, who's the vice presidential candidate, based on a a, ser- a series of surveys. So yeah. Explain that for anybody. So so basically, the the incumbent president in Taiwan is um, uh, Tsai Ing-wen. She's from the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party. Um, traditionally, they were the party of independence, although they've tempered that when they got into power. But Beijing does not like the DPP. So the current president is finishing this up her updated article. Yeah. It literally just happened. Finishing up her, her yeah. second term. Before we go down right the now, Taiwan rabbit hole, the, yeah. the, the point, though, is what's happened is that um, the former the, the Chinese always prefer the KMT, the Kuomintang, which was the original party that um, – they had a civil war with, but then the KMT, you know, fled to Taiwan and set up the Republic of China. Right. Their problem Taiwan. with the CCP is not that they're communists; it's that they took power from. Right. They're they're, they're usurpers. But, that, but, that, but the Chinese, the, 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 the Beijing views that the KMT is much more willing to engage in discussions for a political solution to reunification or something approaching reunification, whereas the DPP is intransigent. Currently, in the polls, the the current vice president um, is the DPP candidate for president. He's leading and. The way Taiwan politics is working, there, there, I think four other candidates, three other candidates for president. Um, that sort of splits the field, means that the DP would likely win. Now that though that two of those candidates have combined from the KMT and this other party, the TPP, right? The Taiwan, the very popular sort of or or very iconoclastic, I think is the right. word you use, so, uh, mayor of Taipei. So, but that news just broke last night. But that means that now the election, which is I think the. Th- 13th of January or the second week in January, yeah, somewhere in January. Um, is, is going to be much more competitive. It means it's much more possible that the DPP loses. And the concern has been over the next couple of months what China would do to really, you know, how they would, would sort of try and raise the tensions or manipulate to, to sort of tr- somehow influence the elections. Now, they may not need to do that as much because they got Ma Zhou, who they like, has brokered this deal. So what that may mean is it lowers the tensions around the Taiwan election for the next couple of months. That feeds into this sort of broader kind of stabilization of U.S.-China relations. So it may actually mean the next two or three months are a little less fraught. And, and some of the geopolitical risk, at least in the short term, maybe has dissipated. So I have one question. Do you think that the potential for stabilization here is a reflection of vulnerability on both the U.S. side and the China side of the relationship right now? Uh, I think they both would like uh, relief from some of the pressures. I mean, the U.S., I don't think, wants a crisis with China when they're dealing with the crisis in the Middle East, crisis in Ukraine. The Chinese economy is not doing well. They need, they, they could use a, a better environment because one of the things that's happened with the, with the really deteriorating U.S.-China relationship, but also the tensions over Taiwan, is it spooked all these foreign businesses. It's one of the reasons you're seeing, or I think several of the reasons you're seeing uh, a foreign money leave China, foreign businesses either leave or stop investing, um, because you, you, how, do you, how do you say I'm commit to a $5 billion new investment in China when maybe there'll be war over Taiwan in, in you know, two, three, four, ten years? Um, so the hope, I think, not the hope, but, the, but one, of the, one of the possibilities is we're moving into a stage where People, 
at least businesses can start to make the argument that things have stabilized and maybe they can get back a little bit more. Because a lot of these companies, they'd much rather be in the China market. For sure. Right? For sure. So, and then they're, they're about to have dinner. You know, she's having a dinner with these CEOs. They're a very eager audience. They, they are very receptive to positive messages from the Chinese. So I think we also may see coming out of this dinner, you know, some of these big CEOs talking about how, well, you know what, actually, it's all over, you know, it's all overdone. It's overblown. This negativity, it's not that bad. She's the guy we can do business with. Maybe not. But I think that's the, there is a possibility because the Chinese are, I think they have realized that they need to do a better job of talking, at least talking to the foreign investors. The one thing that I, that, that is of concern and relevant to all three podcasts here is you know, there's a lot of talk of like 2027 or whatever it be, which mostly has to do with like U.S. changing its, you know, its its fleets, and that's going to be the lowest force level. And China's obviously modernizing and you know and building up their their capabilities. This there is this AI angle, which is the whole point, if you believe it, that AI has some sort of military application, is not really about the capabilities that exist today. It's the capabilities that exist in. 2035 or something like that and even if you are optimistic about china catching up in chips and catching up in their capabilities we're we're talking like a long-term 10 to 20 year sort of play and there is china's relative weakness technologically speaking compared to the u.s is probably going to be in the you know around 2030 probably somewhere around then and the fact that happens to line up with all these other factors I, th- I think is a concern. Like the, one of the most destabilizing things that can happen in terms of like military force or whatever is when one side perceives they're about to become at a some sort of permanent disadvantage yeah. and wants to sort of like get ahead of it. So um, there's good news and bad news. Yeah, I think, and I'm, I'm not at all saying that the risks are gone. I'm just saying that you may see a brief period where people. Where attitudes shift a little bit, right? You're not saying two, three months, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not so sure about the next two, two, three, five years. Adjustment to less pessimism might be the way I would describe it, which would be good. Um, But the risks, the risks certainly remain. Yep. Very good. Well, it's been a fun year. Um, Everyone, links in the show notes. You can again, if you go subscribe to Sharp China now and Sharp Tech now, you're going to get the exact same podcast. So we apologize for that. (laughs) But there's lots of other good podcasts, and there is a new Sharp China that will be. Uh, next you know, week. Yeah, next early week next we'll week, talk we'll... about this meeting in yes. much more in depth. Yes. yes. For now, you can go back talk to... about the second most important meeting of the week. Uh, a fun <laughs> discussion of Gavin Newsom a couple weeks ago. There's some a highlight that I enjoyed. Yes, Gavin Newsom. Uh, dude, America's <laughs> unexplained envoy to China. Yes, what's going on there? All part of the adventure. <laughs> and the and the the. The, 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 he, there's a basketball angle. You saw the video, right? Where, yes, you, where he, he took out, over took out the, and, yes. the, 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 the primary school kid. That is the hack, by the way. Because, it, first of all, when we started Sharp China, I was not expecting the U.S.-China relationship to devolve progressively each past I know. It's been very, very <laughs> tough for Optimus Sharp. Welcome yes. to my world. This so, has been, yeah, exactly. it's been so seven years. For some positive, lighthearted... Yeah, it turns out when you left Beijing, it was getting bad. Well, that's why I left. It was like a high oh, point. Because I had friends <laughs> saying, you know, today's the best day of the U.S.-China relationship for the next several decades. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like Chinese friends. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> it turned out they were right. Right. A couple weeks ago, we had to uh, toward the end of the episode. I had to like abandon the rundown and say, "Bill, just tell me what it was like starting cynicism." And so he told us the story of starting cynicism. That was terrific. But in general, uh, Sharp China Sports is how we end each episode yes. with a, a dispatch about usually basketball, but who knows what we get into 
Also, some panda coverage. There's been some exhaust. Maybe we'll get pandas. I don't know. This week we could get more pandas. Oh, that that would be that would be a easy big deal. win. Easy, we, easy win. win. So we'll see. But. I mean, it, she does nothing but embrace easy wins. Oh wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> Great note to end. Yeah, we were getting a little too optimistic, but um, yes, we'll have to make this an annual tradition. Yeah, it's we should good. go to we should go to Taiwan. We should do it in Taipei. I'm I'm ready. Taiwan, and then maybe the the Shanghai Grand Prix if they, they ever start running that again. I don't think you can go to Shanghai going, now. I don't think we're, I don't think, no, I don't think we're going to China anytime soon. Let's be, now that you're on Shop China, sure. I don't know, but we'll have to see. We'll <laughs> get to- Very good, Bill. Andrew, good to have you, and um, love, love. I'm. It's so great that you got, that this is part of the Strictly Bus Bundle. Of course, I'm talking my book here, but it is a perfect example of like something that's important. Get the best sort of person in the world to just like explain what's going on, and have Andrew as like this perfect sort of stand-in for people's questions and understanding. And yeah, I'm happy to work with you guys and happy to do this podcast. So are we? Thanks. Good to see you. Always great. Thanks, everybody.